and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the topics that matter most in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. And I'm Taylor Scollin. If you've been listening to the show for a little while, you may have noticed that we've been tackling some more policy-focused discussions, and we hope you're enjoying them as much as we have. Today, we're going to tackle an interesting topic, and it is Canadian policing, which you know, is what so many municipalities, provincial governments, even the federal government allocates so much money to. There's so many people in this particular workforce. And I don't really understand how it works. Taylor, what do you know about Canadian policing? Yeah, I'm totally on the same page. It's not something that I understand well at all, but it is something where you clearly see that there are problems and it's such a high stakes job. Um, that when things go wrong, they they really go wrong. So I think it's important to try to better understand how our police system works, how it's funded, how it operates, and try to get our arms around what some of these problems are and how we might go about fixing them. Absolutely. And effective policing, which is kind of this place where everyone wants to get to, is so much more than just you know looking at policing as a whole. It requires discussions around policy. It requires discussions around funding. And I thought it would be really great to have an expert on that's super familiar with both of those things and much, much more. Kent Roach is a law professor at the University of Toronto. He's an award-winning scholar on a wide range of legal subjects, including law enforcement, counterterrorism, and national security. His most recent book, Canadian Policing, How and Why It Must Change, has been shortlisted for the Donner Prize, and we're really excited to have him here today. Kent, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. It's a pleasure to be here, Sarah. Can we start with a high-level overview of policing in Canada? Because I don't really know how the whole system works. Can you talk about the levels and kind of how they work together? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean it's certainly more complex than, say, in uh, New Zealand, where there's only one police force for the whole country, or Australia, when there, there's only about eight. So we have about 136 uh, police services, and plus about 30 Indigenous self-administered police services. So policing is generally a matter of provincial jurisdiction, but uh, municipalities and regions have their own uh, police services, although they're ultimately account they're accountable both to the uh, regional or local government and the provincial government. Of course, we have the RCMP, uh, which uh, does federal policing in areas of federal jurisdiction, but is also doing contract policing and is the local and provincial or territorial police force in all three territories and in eight provinces everywhere except uh, Quebec and Ontario, which along with Newfoundland has their own provincial uh, police services. And there's a debate now, whether Alberta might uh, uh, have its own provincial police service, which it did at one time. So it's a very kind of complex and dynamic uh, 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 scan of what is out there in policing. Uh, you know, generally, police services will try to work together, but I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, there are things that slip through the cracks. Uh, uh, quite a while ago in Ontario, we had an investigation by just 
Justice Campbell that looked at, um, you know, things that were lost between different police services in uh, in uh, Ontario in the Paul Bernardo, the serial murderer investigation. Uh, Justice Epstein, when she looked at missing persons investigations, documented a bit of slippage between Toronto and Peel. So, I, you know, I think you have to realize that police services in Canada have to work together, but they are large organizations subject to their own chain of command, subject to their own uh, political lines of responsibility. As a follow-up to that, maybe to get into some of these systemic reasons for this slippage, I guess I can ask a broader question of like, what is every level of policing responsible for enforcing and, and where are the, the gaps between them? Yeah, well, I mean, all police services will enforce the criminal law. Um, but, you know, the RCMP has a special jurisdiction in federal policing over matters that are international uh, matters of national security, uh, protecting uh, people uh, in Parliament, and and uh, and so on. So there is a lot of overlapping jurisdiction of the different police services, and so one of the issues is: Do we have the right mix? Uh, does it make sense for every city or region that has their own police service? Does it make sense? for them to do everything. Uh, maybe you bring in the OPP or the RCMP when you have a specialized need, uh, specialized forensic investigations or an emergency response team. And so, again, this is, um, you know, this constant trying to get the mix uh, uh, right in Canada and, and also given trends in crime, we know that a lot more crime now is cyber and has international dimensions. So that may push more towards uh, an RCMP role. Um, and, but we also know that a lot of problems are very local and that we want uh, police to work with other agencies. So that's a particular challenge. And the Mass Casualty uh, Commission, which recently came out, uh, you know, really said police need to work not in silos on their own, but with other uh, uh, private and public organizations that can contribute to community safety. So, I mean, your book is about why policing must change. So maybe you could just walk us through the main arguments around that and talk about what are the big problems that Canadian policing has right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the main argument in the book is that uh, for too long, uh, the police have essentially been self-governing. And by that, I mean that whether it's the minister who is responsible for national and provincial uh, police services or the police service boards uh, have uh, often not um, had either the ability or the inclination to establish policy 
policies for policing. And you saw this most recently in Justice Rouleau's report on the public order emergency, where he said that the Ottawa Police Service um, uh, had a diminished view of its role. And in fact, one of the um, uh, people on the board uh, wrote an email saying, I wish we could do something more than watch. And so part of the book is an argument that um, there is a legitimate democratic role in policing and it's it's about establishing policies and priorities where there probably is not a democratic role in policing is you don't want an elected official or even an appointed official on a police board telling the police who to investigate and who not to investigate because there's obviously threats uh, to the rule of law and favoritism. But in my view, everything beyond those individual discretionary law enforcement decisions should be subject to political direction. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, the police, uh, that, that the governors should ignore what the police say. They are the people with some expertise. And it may be in many cases, they will say, well, the plannings or the priorities the police have set are okay with us. But as you saw with the prolonged uh, occupation in Ottawa, it was pretty clear that the police were, were not doing uh, the job that the public expected them. And that's where the rubber hits the road. And I think in a democracy, that means that you have to have some democratically accountable body to then say, uh, look, you have to do better. And have you tried this? And maybe you should do that. But that should be done in a much more transparent way. And again, to come back to the Mass Casualty Commission, they affirmed a recommendation that was made way back in 2007 by Justice Linden when he was examining uh, the OPP shooting of an, uh, an Indigenous protester in Eprawash, where uh, both commissions said, "Not we don't want politics or, or you know, uh, the responsible politicians to have complete hands off. But when they do intervene for good or, good or bad, it should be done in a transparent way. And at least in theory, in a democracy, that means if you don't like who's governing the police, you can vote for another party or, 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 or so on. Can we just pause on the Ottawa emergency, the convoy? issue for a second because i feel like that is a case where you know myself pretty much anyone who is watching that who's not familiar with how policing works s couldn't really understand why that was happening the way it was happening you know it seemed like every level of government uh elected representatives wanted a certain outcome and it just for whatever reason in that case didn't happen uh, and then, you know, when you move to the Windsor Bridge, the blockades that were beginning to emerge there, they were very quickly dealt with. So exactly. can you talk about yeah, how yeah, that yeah, happened? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's a great question, Taylor. Um, I think what you saw 
in Ottawa was there was a lack of a plan about how to handle protests on Wellington Street and in the downtown core and the occupation that ensued. And in my book, I talk about how the Ottawa Police Service Board had plans for labor protests, for Indigenous protests, but nothing about Wellington Street, which struck me mm-hmm. as, as very odd because this obviously wasn't the first protest on Wellington Street in front of Parliament. And so I think what you saw initially was a failure of the Ottawa police uh, because they didn't have a plan. Then you saw... Um, uh, both provincially and nationally uh, a request that the OPP and the RCMP assist Ottawa. But again, you didn't have any kind of politician really taking uh, control. So I believe that the Ontario Solicitor General, who is the minister responsible for the OPP, simply sent the request over to uh, the OPP commissioner. And and uh, Justice Rouleau was, you know, fairly critical that Ontario was a bit absent. And even at the federal level, there was a lot of talk about operational independence of the police. And and I don't think that's a, a helpful way of thinking uh, about police independence. As I said uh, earlier, police independence for me is about not interfering with law enforcement and law and investigations. But really, everything the police do can be characterized as operations. So for me, it would have been legitimate for the responsible minister, either for the OPP or the Surete or the RCMP to say, look, uh, I think you should do something and maybe you should do it this way, right? Um, And so uh, I think that that was the problem. And so it was a failure of policing, but I think ultimately it was a failure of police governance. And I think it was also an indication that when you have three, potentially four with Indigenous governments, four levels of government, there's always uh, a danger that it'll be kind of after you and pointing the fingers. And I think Canadians were, uh, by and large, uh, you know, uh, understandably concerned that it took so long to... um, uh, clear the occupation. I want to stay on the point of governance here because I admit I don't fully understand it. So I guess how, like at any level, I mean, who decides right now what the police do and do not do at every single level? They all have this requirement to uphold the criminal code, but like who's deciding like whether we're clearing that protest, whether we're pursuing drugs here or some sort of trafficking ring there? Like who is currently calling the shots on those decisions? Is it the boards that you referred to or? Yeah, no, no. Um, in terms of allocating resources, because, I mean, the police are expensive and they don't have unlimited resources. I think in the first instance, it's up to the person who is leading the police. But I think it's also possible for the board or or the responsible minister to say, um, you know, I want you to focus, you know, devote more attention to X sort of crime 
right? It might be crime in uh, uh, for people using public transit. It might be cyber crime, you know, what, what, whatever. Uh, but I think that when uh, the minister or the board says that, they also have to listen to what the police leader says, which is often, yes, I can devote more people to that, but it means taking people away from here. Or it means that we need a hundred more police officers with an you know an average cost of almost one hundred and twenty thousand dollars just in salaries, and that's not including benefits and 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 equipping them and training them. Uh, so you know it really should be a dialogue between the police leader, the minister, or the police board, and. If, if you're in a jurisdiction where there is a police board, uh, most of those police boards will have public meetings. They may not be the most well-attended meetings uh, or well-covered by the press, but there you could actually see that sort of dialogue where uh, the board, which is either uh, appointed by the province and or appointed by the local council, can say, well, can't you do more about this? And the police leader will say, yes, we'll, we'll try, but it also we're also dealing with these other issues that you may not know that we're, we're dealing with. And so that's, that's almost a democratic dialogue that goes on. Um, you don't see that dialogue so much at the provincial or the national level. And that's one of the reasons why the MCC and before that Ipperwash said that when the minister tells uh, a provincial or national police force to do something, th that it should be written down and it, and it should generally be made public. Uh, again, so that people know uh, uh, what the priorities of the police are. Uh, but it seems to me that policing away from law enforcement discretion is no different than health and education is in a world of limited resources you have to assign priorities and in a democracy i think citizens can should be able to expect and and in fact demand that the responsible the elected officials uh, um, uh, make those priorities albeit in consultation with doctors or police or teachers who are the experts on the ground actually administering this service to the public. This is like very high stakes resource allocation. I just wonder as a follow-up to that, are there any examples that you can point to where the actions of like police services have maybe been like out of step with what the public opinion or what maybe what the public will would have, you know, wanted them to be doing? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about this uh, combination of over-policing and under-protection. And that may seem, again, kind of strange, but, you know, police, let, let, let's take the unhoused population for an example. You can have the police uh, um, issue tickets uh, to people that are camping or, uh, or breaking a bylaw 
uh, uh, or or even engaged in kind of low-level public disorder because they are unhoused. Um, so you can have them, 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 the police do that. But we also know from the available research that the vast majority of those tickets will never be paid. So basically, the public is paying for a pretty expensive police officer to give a ticket that doesn't seem to have uh, very much uh, uh, effect. At the same time, we know that if you're unhoused, um, it's often very dangerous. And I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the unhoused population, not everyone, but many of them seem to have weapons. And so again, uh, this is kind of a vicious circle in that if the unhoused are afraid of the police, don't trust the police because of over-policing and what they view as harassment, they're also probably going to be underprotected uh, when they are victims of crime or when they are potential uh, uh, victims of crime because they will just kind of migrate to places where the police are not going to bother them, even if that makes them perhaps less safe. So, you know, and, and, and one of the things that I found is this uh, over-policing and under-protection thesis, which has long been accepted with respect to Indigenous people. So think about all of the Indigenous people, a third of our jails are Indigenous people, some for serious crimes, but some for perhaps not so serious crimes. Uh, but we also know that Indigenous people are disproportionately subject to victimization. We know about Indigenous missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, but it also applies to the unhoused. I would argue it applies to LGBTQ2S uh, communities, uh, Muslim communities, um, uh, perhaps young people in, in, in some way because they are also uh, often over-policed, but they also suffer higher levels of crime uh, than older folks like me, even though uh, older folks are often the ones that are most concerned about crime. So, so there's, there's lots of things that are not optimal. And I think that, you know, one of the challenges is, uh, you know, the police are paid uh, as I think they should as highly trained professionals, but they should be informed by evidence and we should have research just like, uh, you know, in our hospitals and in our schools, uh, the curriculum and the standard operating procedures are changing in light of evidence about what works and what doesn't work. Well, I think the same applies to policing, but policing much of the policing training is about kind of basic learning the criminal code, learning how to drive properly, learning how to protect yourself, um, and uh, learning about the use of weapons. All of that may be necessary, but you also need to develop uh, an idea that policing is an evidence-based profession. And like all professions, it's one based on continuous learning throughout your career. So my daughter's a nurse, so she has to undergo continuing education. I'm a lawyer, same for me. The police do 
have continuing education. But, you know, again, it's often focused on the immediate requirements to recertify with respect to the various tasers and guns and, and uh, other equipment that they use. You know, one thing that you'll hear people say when crime goes up, uh, which is, you know, this is something that we're experiencing, I guess, right now in Toronto with crime on the TTC. And you'll hear people say, well, maybe there are other solutions, but sort of the police are what we have for the reasons that you just outlined. So what we need to do is hire more police. I'm curious uh, what the evidence about that approach is does that work just adding more police yeah i mean i mean unfortunately we don't have as robust evidence as we should and the toronto example you know someone should have been studying it i can tell you it wasn't me uh, perhaps it should have been but i think for six weeks um, a lot of toronto police were paid overtime and uh, w- uh, appeared in the toronto subway um, and then um, uh, the money for that or, you know, for whatever reasons, that kind of stopped. And now the TTC is working with their own uh, form of police, their security guards, community safety officers. And so, you know, really that was a natural experiment. Uh, maybe the, the time frames were not long enough to really measure, but, you know, the issue would be were people much safer when the police were there or when a kind of combination of these other personnel uh, were, uh, were, were there. Uh, or even another alternative, if, you know, most attacks on the subway are happening, you know, between 12 and 1, it's not going to be popular with people that like to stay out, but maybe the trains stop at 12 uh, or the trains stop at 12 on Friday and Saturday is counterintuitive. Uh, so, so again, um, I can't say with certainty or with evidence uh, exactly what what uh, what is best. I can say that in the Toronto case, the uh, uh, use of overtime police officers, I think, was uh, for six weeks, uh, was you know well over a million dollars, and was not not seen as sustainable given the fiscal deficit that that Toronto faces, and 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 of course, you know the the fiscal deficits that many municipalities and regions are in is also part of this story, is that many you know, in urban environments. Uh, we have local police uh, that often take up about 25% of the local budget. Um, and, 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 and as I said, if there's cuts to those police budgets, there's a chance that the province might intervene and say, well, you don't have effective policing and you actually do have to put more money into policing. But there's, there's no standards to say we don't have effective schools or we don't have effective social services so there's a bit of a uh, of a privileging of the police which you know I think represents uh, this association we have uh, between the police and safety which you know has a, a a degree of truth but I think that you know even in Ontario now 
uh, every municipality has to prepare a community safety and well-being plan. And this was enacted by the Ford government. And even this, this plan recognized the police have to be at the table, but they're not the only people at the table. You also have social services. You also have schools. You also have health. Um, so even in Ontario, I think there's a bit of a recognition that um, community safety is not something that is totally in the police hands, which isn't, isn't to say that in some instances, increasing police presence may actually uh, be effective, but we need to measure that. And, and also we need to compare its costs and benefits uh, uh, compared to alternative measures, which may often be less costly. When we talk about effective policing and the kind of desire to shift more resources to the social services that you mentioned, I can't help but think of um, technology and maybe its role in making police forces a bit more efficient. How are how are police forces using technology and is it helping them become more efficient so yeah. that the to get closer to that end goal of having resources to like allocate to to other yeah. places as you mentioned yeah well i mean you know i mean the use of technology is i think uh, a bit of a double-edged sword so uh you know the rcmp uh gone in trouble for using uh clear view artificial intelligence uh the privacy commissioner uh found a number of violations the privacy commissioners also didn't say you can never use facial recognition so they've laid out uh, some pretty demanding parameters. Uh, but facial recognition is obviously uh, something that is used, uh, you know, I think in London, uh, I taught in London, England, and, uh, you know, there's just so many cameras and they do use facial recognition. It was used with respect to the London bombings. The RCMP uh, use facial recognition with uh, uh, respect to exploited children. Uh, so, you know, again, it's, it's this kind of competing values, right? Uh, to what extent do we want to identify culprits and want the police to be more efficient because they're very expensive? And to what, ex what extent are we concerned about privacy and equality? Because one of the other concerns about facial recognition technology is it may not work as well uh, for uh, visible minorities. And, and we also know that even with eyewitness identification, uh, which is just human, uh, not mediated through machines, that there are problems with cross-racial identifications. We're, we're not great at identifying people generally, so maybe we do need machines to help, but we also know that we're humans are not that great if the person is of a different race. Um, and um, so, 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 yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't think technology is going to uh, certainly, you know, um, uh, transform 
reform policing as much as people might think. I mean, I don't think we're moving to that kind of minority report uh, future where all the police are going to be, you know, just monitoring cameras. Um, but it could play some role, but subject to these competing uh, uh, values. And, and again, you know, I think before we get to a technological solution, we need to think about a governance solution. We need to decide as a society, uh, are, are we prepared to sacrifice some privacy and perhaps some equality for greater police efficiency? One area that I talk about in the book, though, where I think technology might play a role, but again, I think politics comes in, is does it make sense for the police to do traffic enforcement? And, you know, I don't know about the two of you, but, you know, I, I think, you know, five years ago, I got a ticket for a rolling stop. Um, and I wasn't very happy with it. But when you think that, you know, the, the, there's a lot of money that goes in to having someone, you know, having a cruiser sit in a neighborhood because people are concerned that there's rolling stops or people are going through too quickly. Um, I'm not sure that that is the best way to contribute to traffic safety. Uh, but at the same time, if we had a camera that caught a rolling stop and through a machine sent me a bill, we know people don't like that either, right? So, but, but the whole area of traffic safety, I think, is one where, you know, maybe um, we have to look at alternatives. I mean, it isn't that we should not care about traffic safety because traffic accidents um, um, kill far more people in Canada than are killed by crime every year. It's a serious problem. But are the police the best people? Should we have some sort of traffic police combined with cameras, combined with better road designs, the rumble strips that sometimes prevent uh, head-on uh, crashes when people fall asleep or perhaps are intoxicated? Now, you know, I think a lot of people will say, well, you still need the police to enforce dangerous driving, uh, impaired driving, and so on. So again, you know, it doesn't have to be a zero sum, but I think as with the deba debates about police detasking, which I think is a better term than defunding, because I don't think, you know, very few people want to actually defund the police, so they do not exist. But detasking um, is something where you could say, well, how much of the traffic enforcement, uh, um, uh, you know, how much is that costing us as a society? How much is it um, uh, preventing traffic accidents, and are there more better cost-effective alternatives, either with unarmed, lower-paid people and or 
the use of technology. And so these are all, I think, essentially empirical questions. But, uh, you know, in Canada, uh, we don't spend a lot on police research. We don't have something like they have in the United Kingdom, where they have a college of policing, which is there not only to train police, but also to conduct evidence-based research on what works and what doesn't work. And so, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that uh, I suggest in the book is the federal government could play a role in financing a college of policing in Canada that would not only be involved in training officers at the start and throughout their career, perhaps setting standards for police, but also doing the sort of research about what are the most effective uh, policing and community safety initiatives? One thing that I notice, uh, I, I think it happens in a lot of issues that we talk about in Canada, is that our view of what's happening seems to be heavily influenced by the American media and the U.S. experience. So I wonder if you can just talk about your view of how policing in Canada compares to what's going on in the States? And I guess more specifically, is it as bad here as it seems to many people to be at least in America? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, one of the first chapters of the book, I started the book um, um, after George Floyd. And so one of the first chapters looks at what happened in Canada in June, 2020. And, um, you know, uh, Although there might not have been a George Floyd, it certainly suggests that Canadians should not think that they are superior. So we had uh, police killings of Chantal Moore and Rodney Levy, two Indigenous people in New Brunswick um, that at most had guns. I think in Chantal Moore's case, it was a steak knife. Um, uh, we had the video of Chief Alan Adam being grounded uh, by a second R. CMP officer, and uh, we also had a conviction uh, of a Toronto police officer off duty uh, uh, for assaulting Defonte Miller, uh, causing that that young black man uh, to lose his eye. So, you know, part of the book is to suggest that um, we do have some of the same problems, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean we need to adopt the same remedies. One of the remedies that we have adopted, the American remedy, is with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, like the Americans, we're relying on courts to uh, regulate the police behavior. And so I'm a law professor, I teach this to my students, and many of the cases on search and seizure, stop and frisk, interrogation, we've essentially followed the American route. But the question that I ask in the book, stepping back as a lawyer, is, is this making police policing better? And I really don't find a lot of evidence that it is making policing better. And all that judicial regulation certainly hasn't improved policing, you know, significantly in the United States. So we do have some of the same problems, but it doesn't necessarily mean we have to have the same remedies. Uh, and, you know, again, 
in the United States, you see a lot of uh, litigation against individual police departments. They have just, I mean, I think they have something like 30,000 different police uh, services, like every little tam hamlet county, you know, uh, so, so, it, so it's different. But the Americans are obviously very litigious, happy, and Canadians are increasingly becoming so. And so many uh, American police services uh, are uh, operating under injunctions or consent decrees entered by the courts. And in some cases, that has been effective. We don't necessarily see that happening in Canada. So we have some of the same problems, but our remedies maybe should be different. And one of the things that I write about in the book is maybe we should be looking less to the states for remedies, more to the UK, more to Australia, more to New Zealand, because all three of those Commonwealth countries rely on legislative regulation of police behavior. And so one of the things to go back to the Ottawa occupation is Justice Rouleau said, we need a modern law about regulating public protests. I mean, our law goes back to the criminal code. Literally, you have to read the riot act right? That, that's still a provision that has not changed since we first enacted our criminal code in 1892. Whereas the Brits have had lots of controversial democratic debates about how to regulate how, uh, uh, public protests. Uh, and, and again, I mean, I, I may not as a citizen be happy about how those debates uh, 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 end up, but I'd rather have that debate than simply saying, well, don't worry about it. The Supreme Court's going to take care of this because the courts only see a, a, a minuscule sliver of police behavior. And I think it kind of defies common sense to think that court rulings that go on for pages and pages and are sometimes difficult for me, certainly my students, to understand how how is that going to dictate how a police officer is making a split-second decision. Uh, whereas if you have legislative standards and if you have a college of policing and you're always looking at what these standards should be, I think that's a better way than waiting until the police do something and then saying either gotcha, uh, what you did was wrong or what you did was fine. Uh, I mean, that's all sporadic after the fact regulation, where what we need to think about is before the fact uh, evidence-based regulation. And we're a long way away from that uh, with respect to Canadian policing. I, I just have one last question here because I know we're getting to the end of the time, but I'm curious what the culture or what the view of actual police officers on the ground doing you know, a day-to-day job is of this. I'm sure that they're not unaware of some of these concerns and criticisms that, that people have. How, how do they feel about this? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, ride along with some uh, police officers and talk to some. So, I mean, obviously it's, you know, just a, a, a narrow set, but I think police uh, officers are, you know, they're, they're well aware 
that um, uh, some aspects of the public are losing faith and trust, and they want to do what they can to regain that. I mean, you know, we've seen debates about police going into schools, even for job fairs, and so on. I think there is a bit of, you know, sense that we're getting tarred with the American brush. And as I said, I think that's actually a more complex um, um, uh, conversation. But I also think the police are saying they're dealing with problems like home, homelessness, the opi o opioid crisis, the mental health crisis that got worse uh, by the pandemic. And we're having to deal with this because we're the people that are available on a 24-7 basis. And I think police officers that I've talked to and certainly police leaders are would be more than happy to cede uh, some of their activities to those who are better trained at dealing with addictions, better trained at dealing with mental health. I, I, I don't at all see that the police say, oh yeah, we're doing a great job here and we want to continue it. I think that they feel uh, just as overwhelmed by it as the public are. And uh, again, I think that they uh, are, you know, um, wanting good solutions while not, you know, only having limited tools. They're, they're doing what they can. Uh, they are sometimes working with mental health nurses and, 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 and collaborating with other agencies. But until uh, those other agencies have uh, the funding that they need, then the police are kind of stuck with dealing with a lot of stuff that no one is kind of dealing with. So, you know, I, I actually think that my governance solution, which is basically all of our governments, local, provincial, and federal, have to up their game and they have to become more uh, uh, charged with this issue. Uh, I don't think many police officers would disagree. Where, where they would disagree, and I think they're right, is we don't want a politician telling the police who to investigate and who not to, because that is obviously going to lead to corruption and and and, and could could offend the rule of law, but but I I get the sense that the police know that they are dealing with problems that are uh, that that they were probably never really designed to deal with, uh, and they're also uh, you know they're aware of things like the charter, they're aware of things like the SIU. They will also tell you that you know we're the most heavily regulated um, civil servant that there is. And, you know, I guess my reply is, yeah, I mean, that's right. You're probably, you know, one of the few civil servants that carry guns that, you know, the, the army does, but, um, uh, but they are well aware. And, and they're also aware that, you know, if they do something wrong, they could potentially be criminally charged. They could be potentially be sued. There could be a police complaint. There could be a discipline action where they could be removed from the force or, uh, you know, given some other sanction. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's a difficult job. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, many police services are, are having more problems recruiting uh, people to come into policing uh, than, than they have had in the past. 
That's great. I'm, I, I think that's a great place to leave it. I know we're at time. Ken, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to chat with us. This was really interesting. Yeah, that was fascinating. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Sarah and Taylor. That was a fascinating conversation with Kent. I think it was really helpful for him to help for me at least place policing into this like broader ecosystem of public agencies that all kind of need to work together to tackle some of the problems and issues that you, that I, that some of our listeners might be kind of noticing day to day that might be reading in the headlines and how, you know, it's not as easy as just bringing in more police to slap more tickets on people, how that is not, you know, the best use of public funds at the end of the day, how it really is going to require this broader push with lots of different sides involved. Yeah, it was interesting to hear that a lot of the officers that he spoke to in the course of putting his book together were aware of these problems and felt that they were maybe doing too much already. Uh, but then, you know, I, like any institution, I'm, I'm skeptical that police forces will, you know, happily accept the budget cuts that would go along with shifting some of their tasks onto other agencies. So I'd be curious to see how that would play out if anyone actually tried to do it. And one of the other things that stood out to me was how complicated, uh, policing in Canada has become with all these different levels trying to work together and the cracks that are created because of that, you know, because we have a federal system with provinces and cities and the federal government all doing different things. And I've noticed that this is something that we see across multiple interviews that we've done and issues that we've talked about where various levels of government can just pass off solving problems to other levels of government because of this system that we have. Like housing is another example of this totally. where they all just like pass the buck and blame each other for, you know, a very serious problem that just doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, it seems to be one of these things that's just like a root of many, many evils in this country. Yeah. Everyone's so impressed always with how New Zealand tackles like everything, right? From governance to policing to social support, like everything New Zealand does is just the best. And it kind of just uh, reinforces maybe any kind of argument that you can make that, you know, everyone should just be, you know, broken off into municipalities and, and deal with things that way, because maybe that'll be the only thing the only way that things can get get done. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a lot easier when it's like one little island with one level of government. You know what? I don't actually know how New Zealand's <laughs> government works, I, <laughs> so I shouldn't say things like that. Yeah, well, um, you start to see but, where things start to get a little bit more complicated. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to leave it. What about you? Okay, let's leave it there. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. You can catch this episode and every other episode that we've recorded on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. You can find me at Sarah Bartnika on Twitter. And I'm Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. We'll see you next week. Bye.